The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Over Christmas, I watched a perennial movie of the season, The Polar Express, As you probably remember, the story tells of a dream train, the Polar Express, that takes certain chosen children to the North Pole to prove to them that faith in Santa is justified. I hadn't seen it in years, and I had no problem with it back then. After all, it was in the spirit of the old famous editorial known as, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus, all about jolly goodwill and a gift-wrapped spirit of Christmas, personified by a commercialized version of Santa himself. Perhaps it was the result of all the political lies we've endured over the last four years, but acknowledgement of what's true and what's not has now become much more important to me. In this day and age, of course, lies to children about the reality of Santa seem trivial indeed. Fake news reports of how his flying sled is being tracked by government radar can't compare to the hundreds of thousands lied to and now dead from a pandemic which we were told would magically go away. Talk about misplaced faith. The death toll in America is grotesquely out of proportion to that of every other nation in the world because we were lied to, and sadly, we believed those lies. So compared to those lies, why pick on Santa? Nevertheless, the bloom is off the Santa rose for me. Even before their exposure to a Sunday school Jesus, Christian children are taught that December 25th is the day to celebrate a red-suited fat man coming down the chimney with a bag full of toys for good little boys and girls. Really? Oh yes, really, kids are told. And it's not just in affluent America where this happens, but in major parts of the industrialized world. Kids are told, that's right, children, everywhere, get a visit from Santa Claus all on the same night. Yes, amazing but true, we were told by our parents, who, ironically, always insisted on truth from us. At the same time, Christian parents also taught that God and Jesus love us too. But God and Jesus don't come down the chimney with toys, so the heck with them, most kids think, as Christmas approaches. Yes, it's marginally interesting that Jesus is said to have been born at Christmas, but That's more or less beside the point to a four-year-old who is setting out a plate of cookies for the red-costumed, bearded character bringing all the goodies. So, when the truth finally occurs to our increasingly questioning brains at age six or seven, the nature of our belief structure is inevitably changed. And that goes for everything. Fool me once, the saying goes, shame on you, parents. But fool me twice with religious tales of Jesus, angels, and a God who loves us? No way. And while some may regain a nonspecific faith in a God, please don't mention stories or visions from a near-death experience. Those stories are jarring reminders of when I was a child being told by my parents that Santa was real. This lifelong assault on a child's belief could be dubbed PTFD, post-traumatic faith disorder. How do adults rationalize encouraging this faith in Santa Claus to their children, children who up till then trusted them as the source of truth and wisdom? 
Well, the Yes, Virginia editorial from 1897 seems to have established the rationale. So let's take a look at that. In 1897, an eight-year-old named Virginia O'Hanlon was encouraged by her father to write to the New York Sun to ask if there really was a Santa Claus. She wrote, Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. But Papa says if you see it in the New York Sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Signed, Virginia O'Hanlon. And she lived at 115 West 95th Street in New York. Virginia, the editorial responded, Your little friends are wrong. They have been afflicted, affected by the uh, skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except in what they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect, as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give to your life as highest, its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if it were no if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus? You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men and watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, but even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not, but that's no proof that they, aren't, they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are seen and un unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it, all, is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus? Thank God, he lives and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. Now, that Sun editorial was not a one-time thing. Every year around this time, dozens of newspapers, including the Bangor Daily News, my newspaper, reprint this response at some, as some tribute to the wisdom of editors, I guess. Hundreds of thousands of people read it every year, all over the, all over the country, for sure, and perhaps all over the world. But look for a moment at the content of this perennial editorial pad on the back. 
It's saying that the importance of faith hinges on a belief in the existence of Santa Claus. Atheists everywhere delight in the result. Now, don't get me wrong. I have pagan as well as Christian revelations about the unseen world behind the curtain. I love them. And that's because, contrary to the editorial, there are real interrelations with the mystical and spiritual every day. I beg your pardon, New York son, but fairies are seen from time to time. My own sister, Anne, when she was four, saw a fairy run across the lawn close to where she was sprawled on the grass. The fairy was startled to recognize it was visible to Anne and ran away. An Irish Catholic priest, a good friend of mine, returned from a trip to Ireland convinced he'd seen a leprechaun sitting on a bridge uh, railing as he drove across the bridge. And, and I myself was led by one of the little people, let's call him, to a witch's hilltop overlooking the city of San Francisco one full moon New Year's Eve and given insights into how to pronounce the name of God. Faith in the supernatural power of love, of empathy, and of giving exists in all faiths, literatures, music, and art from all over the world. But faith in a materialist commercial Santa Claus is not part of the package known as true faith. Granted, Santa Claus is based on the story of a 4th century Greek bishop and gift giver, uh, name of St. Nicholas, but his current image has him rolling in his grave, I am sure. Today's Santa is the result of three image makers. The 1923 poem, 1823 poem, rather, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which you probably know as Twas the Night Before Christmas and All Through the House. A political cartoonist, Thomas Nast, who started drawing images of Santa in 1823 and, and heavy magazine advertising in the 1930s of a fat, bearded, red-suited Santa drinking Coca-Cola. Also to blame during the 1930s, uh, Charles W. Howard, who had played a department store Santa, started a school to train others how to be department store Santas. Santa Claus thus has a long-established tradition in American marketing. Santa is really the patron saint of capitalism, which has long been called America's true religion. By the beginning of this century, Santa's toy production was humorously being described more like an Amazon warehouse than a workshop of elves with mallets. Several years back, I encountered a televangelist who screamed that Santa was an invention of the devil to betray faith in Jesus. Just move the N in Santa, and what do you get? Why, Satan, of course. It's Satan's claws you're promoting when you tell your kids that Santa is real. I thought his presentation was way over the top. Still, in my new NDE-based novel, Beneath the Phoenix Door, uh, character theologian Jacob Alexander has a conversation with Satan that goes like this. Anything else you're particularly proud of? Jacob asked with irony. Oh yes, said the serpent. Call me a romantic, but I think Santa Claus tops the list. If anyone ever said that Santa Claus was an invention of the devil, they'd be, dare I say it, crucified. It would be Scrooge versus Tiny Tim all over again. But think about it. In those first seven years of a child's life, Santa is Jesus. Santa is the man who brings goodies from the sky for good little boys and girls. He even arrives near the pagan date just after winter solstice time for Christ's birthday. 
The beauty part is that Santa is a big lie, a fraud, a fake. He's too good to be true, and as soon as children reach the age of reason, it hits them right between the eyes. If they haven't heard the news before they start school, then it's double it's a double blow. Their parents have been lying to them on this key issue of their young faith. Learning the truth makes the little believers feel like fools. You still believe in Santa Claus? Some older brat says to the kindergartner, Grow up, there is no Santa Claus. Your parents lied to you. And there's no denying the truth. Your friend is right, embarrassed parents confess. We only did it for fun. Bingo. That way we get the kid conditioned to convey spiritual lies and disappointments to the next generation of suckers. And of course, loss of faith in Jesus comes next. Once burned, twice shy, the old saying goes, burn the little darlings once on Santa and you've created a basis of doubt for the rest of their lives. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Well, 2020 was a year so filled with conspiracy theories that I'd rather not start this one off by suggesting Santa was a conspiracy too. So let's say simply... uh, we should deconstruct that 1897 editorial from the New York Sun and uncover where the problems lie. Let's start with the most famous line. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. Well, by that reasoning, if he doesn't exist, then do love, generosity, and devotion fly out the window? Yikes. And the editorial goes on. If there were no Santa Claus, it would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith and no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment, except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Well, this is saying, in effect, that if Santa Claus is a lie, then childlike faith will disappear. In fact, it would be as if children never existed, If you don't believe in Santa, then how can you believe in anything beyond the material world? Uh, Once again, yikes. What's going on in this editorial is more than sentimentalizing Virginia's childhood illusions. It's taking the goals and understanding of faith built on the values of sharing, caring, and love, instituted, tradition would say, by a loving God, and substituting it with a story about a crazed materialist in a red suit who brings lots of stuff we think we want. The editor writing in The Sun in 1897 was trying to support a tempting fairy tale of the spiritual, destined to crash and burn rather than endorse the materialist reality of it. He surely knew that uh, Virginia would soon figure out for herself that Santa was a fiction, editorial or no. What that editor probably didn't think about at the time was that his writing was adding to the advancement of atheism beginning to invade the intellectual framework of the day. I say that because other writings from the 19th century were already having a profound influence on faith in the supernatural. Karl Marx, an atheist, by the way, descended from a long line of rabbis, published Das Kapital in 1867. Marx saw religious belief as a hoax, perpetrated as a weapon in a class war between the haves and have-nots that Marx believed underlie everything. Religion is the opiate of the masses, Marx wrote, because if you say that God loves the poor and meek, and the poor and meek will be the first to go to heaven when they die, 
then why demand the rich give up their exploitation of the poor? Of course, capitalist exploitation does not prove God does not exist. Both can be true in this world. God can love the poor, and it's also true the rich can use this fact to exploit the poor. Marx, an atheist, used the truth of economic oppression to disprove the truth of faith. Another 19th century writer having influence on the, on the thinkers of his day was Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist son, by the way, of a Lutheran pastor. He was famous for proclaiming, God is dead and we have killed him. And with the death of God, he declared the foundation for objective truth, value, and meaning died as well. For Nietzsche, what was true was whatever those with the strongest wills declared it to be. Nietzsche had no use for religion, which elevated the meek and poor. Truth based on compassion, pity, love, and forgiveness was a morality for slaves, according to him. The will to power was what ruled now that God was dead. Well, what does an editorial about Santa Claus have to do with the teachings of Marx and Nietzsche? Well, this editorial continues to play a small but significant role in turning moral values and faith in God into a sentimental reverie about the delusions of childhood. Of course, Virginia's faith in Santa would be gone for good in a matter of months, but let's keep the faith going until it's completely crushed. Unfortunately, a spiritual PTFD of sorts can come along with that realization. Budding agnostics think, my parents and even the son lied to me about the reality of Santa. Do I now write the editor to ask God if God is real too? And will the editor lie to me again? Karl Marx's atheism helped spark and fuel Lenin and the Russian Revolution. Nietzsche's atheism formed a philosophical basis for Hitler and the Nazis, helping to trigger World War II. And an editorial in The Sun, reprinted year after year in dozens of newspapers since 1897, has helped set up children for disillusion with spiritual faith, generation after generation. Ideas do have consequences, sometimes beyond all reason. Well, people don't have to go around quoting Nietzsche in order to kill themselves, kill in themselves all notion of the spiritual. That is, God is dead for them simply in the way they live their lives. Now, I'm not the only experiencer to have encountered pushback on all things spiritual from materialist doctors and other medical professionals who believe all there is is what we can see and touch. As a hospital chaplain, I was sometimes frustrated on a daily basis with doctors who would not even listen to veridical evidence from their own patients' out-of-body experiences. Some of these doctors were raised in religious households, and no doubt many once believed in Santa Claus as well as God. Almost always, Santa was the first to go, and by today there isn't room in their brains for anything like an NDE, unless, of course, they experience one for themselves. You know, I believe we come into this life with the residual memories of where we come from. One four-year-old I knew told his pregnant mother, I hope my sister will be born soon because I'm forgetting what God is like. Our souls are eternal and objective truth is a real spiritual goal we come here to aspire to. That's why we're so gullible as children. We believe because our souls came here from the place of objective truth, the truth we know here as love. It's only when our parents, for a time our new gods, fool us 
that we come to realize that we are now living in a world of lies, and we discover at an early age that faith in Santa Claus is one of the big ones. When I walk the dog this time of year, we pass a front yard where I think they have captured the spirit of Christmas with their annual display. It's three nearly life-size wise men in fancy eastern robes on their way to Bethlehem. Not there yet. No baby in a manger. No Mary with lambs and shepherds looking on. It's just the wise men of the Bible, the Magi, trudging their long journey to honor the birth of a spiritual king prophesied in the stars. They were guarded, guided rather by a star in the east, probably the planet Jupiter, and their faith was in their astrology and in the thought that they should bring gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They traveled from a distant land uh, not to get, but to give, and the wise men on my neighbor's lawn are, symbolically speaking, not there yet. The Magi are making a spiritual journey inspired by their faith-based knowledge of the heavens and the Bible's admission that God's story is written in the stars. As reported in Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Matthew's Gospel describes the Magi's story thusly. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star rise at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, quote, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also uh, go and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then they opened their treasure chests. They offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another path. Now, biblical debunkers have long declared the story of the wise men and the star they followed to be a myth. But astronomers have come up with various theories to explain the so-called Christmas star. And several historical clues seem to verify the possibility. Most intriguing to me is the theory reported by an astronomer uh, name of David Weintraub of Vanderbilt University and reprinted on the internet under the title, Can Astronomy Explain the Biblical Star of Bethlehem? He begins by asking some basic questions, such as, why wouldn't others have noticed this amazing star? 
And how could a star in the east travel ahead of the wise men as a guide and then stop over where the child was? Professor Weintraub says that no star, comet, uh, Jupiter, supernova, or conjunction of planets could do those things. But he reports an ingenious explanation that does not violate the law of physics. Uh, Professor Weintraub writes, uh, quoting another astronomer, Astronomer Michael Molnar, he says, points out that in the East is a literal translation of the Greek phrase anatol, which was a technical term used in Greek mathematical astrology 2,000 years ago. It described very specifically a planet that would rise above the eastern horizon just before the sun would appear. Then, just moments after the planet rises, it disappears in the bright glare of the sun in the morning sky. Except for a brief moment, no one can see this star of the east. That would explain why no one but a few astrologers noticed the event. As to how a planet could apparently stop briefly in its travels, Weintraub explains that a planet appears to stop at the moment Earth's orbit catches up or laps the other planet's orbit. From our point of view from Earth, then, Jupiter seems to stop its motion when Earth's orbit catches up to Jupiter's orbit and passes it by. Weintraub tells us, according to astrology, that when the planet reappears again for the first time and rises in the morning sky, just moments before the sun, for the first time in many months after having been hidden in the sun's glare for those many months, that moment is known to astrologers as a heliacal rising. A heliacal rising, that special first reappearance of a planet, is what Ente Anatol refers to in ancient Greek astrology. In particular, the reappearance of a planet like Jupiter was thought by Greek astrologers to be symbolically significant for anyone born on that day. Thus, the star in the east refers to an astronomical event with supposed astrological uh, an astronomical event with supposed astrological significance in the context of ancient Greek astrology. The Magi were also no doubt aware of Zoroastrian and Hebrew prophecies of a coming Messiah. So they would have been looking for these astronomical and astrological signs. Together, a rare combination of astrological events, uh, the right planet rising before the sun, the sun being in the right constellation of the zodiac, plus a number of other combinations of planetary positions considered important by astrologers, would have suggested to ancient Greek astrologers a regal horoscope and a royal birth. When did such a combination of astronomical events take place? Weintraub reports, quote, the, pot- the portent began on April 17th of 6 BC with the heliacal rising of Jupiter that morning followed at noon by its lunar oc- occultation in the constellation Aries and lasted until December 19th of 6 BC when Jupiter stopped moving to the west, stood still briefly, and began moving to the east as compared with the fixed background stars. By the earliest time, the men could have arrived in Bethlehem, the baby Jesus would likely have been at least a toddler. The dates are six BC, The dates in 6 BC are further confirmed by the fact that Herod died in 4 BC, two years after Jesus' birth. 
I would only add that if the Magi set out at the time of Mary's conception, they would have arrived to attend a late December birth, just as we celebrate at Christmas. Why have I spent your time and attention setting up a contrast between the story of Santa Claus and the story of the Magi? Well, in part because the first century Magi story has the possibility of historic truth about it, as, a co- as opposed to the 19th and 20th centuries' commercialization of Santa. More important, though, is that while the Santa story is one of getting, the Magi story is one of giving. We, the wise men and women of the world, should be on a journey toward the truth of the light. But Santa's story tells us we are defined by what we want and what we get through freedom, will, and power. The Santa vision is the culmination of Marx and Nietzsche's teachings as realized in the 20th century philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Existentialism, a philosophy which teaches that existence precedes essence. Now, what does that mean? simply that no truth, no objective value precedes us into this life. That existence is a blank slate. When we are born, we uh, create our essence, our truth, out of the freedom we enjoy. No God means no controls and nothing is expected. We are free to grab all the toys we want because that's all there is. Or just possibly take the Magi's route instead and bring gifts to the light. Bring the only gifts asked for by the light, which is thankfulness, love, and our sharing with one another. We're free to make that choice as well. Do I believe the Magi's route will ever replace Santa Claus? No, I don't. And you can still have fun with Santa, but let's not pin our children's hope and faith on a fiction when there's so much more to believe in. A childhood built on faith in God who loves them could go a long way toward healing the world. Well, thanks for listening to what I'll call my Santa Sermon. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our nearly 400 past shows, just go to NDE Radio and hit the Past Shows button. For more about IANS, go to their website at IANDS.org. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying, God bless us, everyone.